0: Listener
1: Production. I think when it comes to launching a business, what holds so many back is always fear of failure. And my biggest piece of advice would be to not be afraid to fail and not necessarily even see it as failure, but see that taking of a leap as growth.
2: Strap in. Eleanor Pendleton is the
0: founder of Gritty Pretty, Australia's first interactive digital beauty publication. It's really no surprise that Eleanor has built a business in the beauty space. She was Australia's youngest beauty editor at the age of 20. But after feeling disillusioned with the traditional media landscape, she gave up her career in glossy mags to launch her own media brand. Since then, she's worked hard to bring her vision to life, Featuring big names on the front cover, from Hayley Bieber and Miranda Kerr to even Lara Bingle, we covered how Eleanor convinced brands to get on board from the get go, and how she's built a business by layering revenue streams one on top of the other. It's really an incredible insight for anyone building a media or service-based business. So, Eleanor, we want to start. I mean, I would love to get a better sense of who you are as a person. I think the best way to do that is to kind of take us back. Take us back to the early days um, and talk us through how did you become one of the youngest beauty editors?
1: I'm one of those really annoying people that knew what they wanted to do from an extremely young age. Like I I remember being eight or nine years old and playing magazines with my younger sister and we'd kind of sit at the coffee table and our plastic chairs and have piles of paper and I'd pretend to be almost like marking up her work or, or doing things like that. And then growing up as a, as a young girl, my dad actually, he's always worked in small business and he ran a news agency. And, you know, my afternoons were pretty much spent getting the school bus from my primary school to my dad's shop with my little sister. And to me, those moments were just magical. Like I remember walking in and the smell of magazines mm. and the print and the, and the the ink and the stock. I just remember that smell and and just being completely and utterly obsessed with them. You know, we'd sort of chill at the shop and wait for my dad to wrap up work and close the store. And I would just get access to all these magazines and I'd devour Total Girl and Dolly and Girlfriend. And I think there was even like Not Surfer Girl or Wave Girl or something. (laughs) Um, And I would, that was, you know, my obsession. So I think, yeah, from a really young age, I just knew that's what I was going to do with my life. And I didn't really see any other option. I think I've always been incredibly tenacious. You know, I I did my first job working as the local paper girl for my dad when Mm -hmm. I was 12. When I was in high school, I was always naturally gifted when it came to studying English. Math and science was never my strong suit. And then I think as I approached U 12 and I was, you know, preparing to study my tertiary education, I just knew. I, I can't really describe how or why, but I just knew That's what I was going to do with my life. I was going to be a writer and I was going to work in magazines. And I just didn't accept any other destiny for myself. So because I had no contacts within the industry, I didn't know any family, friend or anyone who worked in publishing. So to me, it was just a no-brainer. You had to basically harass every (laughs) single uh, magazine receptionist or editorial coordinator as, as they're referred to and contact them for work experience. It was just a no-brainer to me. And whilst I was studying a diploma of journalism, again, I think that tenacious spirit came in and I I got accepted into a couple of universities but chose to go to a private college so that I could smash out a degree in two years. I was like, I just want to work. I just can't wait to get into a magazine. And then that was pretty much it. And it ended up just being a really organic progression. But I did land my first job at only 19 years of age as the editorial coordinator and beauty writer for all of Cosmopolitan's sister titles. So sadly, none of those titles are no longer in print. Mm. But those titles back then were Cosmopolitan Hair and Beauty Magazine, Cosmopolitan Bride Magazine, Cosmopolitan Pregnancy Magazine. And even for a short Mm -hmm. moment, there was Cosmopolitan Zest. Zest? What What was that? (laughs) Yeah. It was a health mag that didn't work.
2: Oh, okay. Um, um, But yeah, that was
1: my first job. (laughs) And
2: was working in Glossy Mags everything that you had hoped and dreamed for?
1: Yeah, it it actually was. Maybe because I grew up in, you know, a home where I, um, you know, my dad ran small business. I was always well aware of the realities that, you you know, you had to start somewhere and you had to start on the bottom rung of the ladder and work your way up and pay your dues. And, and to me, I, I liked the challenge of that. Um, so once I did kind of step into those, well, they weren't that glossy, Um, those glossy offices back in the day at 54 Park Street. Mm. It was what I imagined it to be. It was this office full of 30 incredibly stylish women, fashion editors and beauty writers and, and features journalists and graphic designers. And, you know, I remember seeing the fashion cover for the first time and walking into the beauty cupboard and it was everything that I dreamt it would be. And I felt incredibly lucky to be in that space. But I think from the moment I walked in those doors, I just, I decided, I was like, this is what I'm doing. I've, I'm not good at anything else.
2: <laughs> I've got visions of the bolt type. The ball type,
0: yeah. <laughs> devil wears Prada. Yeah, like, yeah. You had your moment. Totally, you had your totally. moment.
2: It sounds really fun. <laughs> that sounds so funny. So you had this kind of gut intuition mm-hmm. that you always wanted to work in mags. Mm. Did you have the same intuition that you wanted to own your own business one day?
1: No, I didn't. I never really imagined I would run my own business. I am incredibly driven and for me, you know, my career is a huge part of my, my life and my identity. It's something I, I truly love and it fills up my cup. But back then, because digital and blogs weren't mm. even a thing, you know, this is 2009, I assumed that the top of my career would be perhaps being an editor of a magazine. And I think because I started in Cosmopolitan, that title really resonated with me and I thought that's what I was going to do. So where did the idea come from? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um,
1: Well, I think, like I mentioned, I've always worked in beauty. Um, I've always been a beauty writer and then went on to become a beauty editor. And I think I'm just one of those personalities where I start getting itchy feet if I'm just not being challenged. If I start to feel stale or I'm, I'm not producing bodies of work that make me feel fulfilled, I'll start naturally thinking about what I can do next. Mm-hmm. So after a few years, I think it was about maybe three or so years working as a beauty editor in Style magazine, I started to get that feeling again. I guess I'd reached that point in my role there where I just felt I was writing things with my eyes shut. But at the same time, I loved beauty so much, but I was very much writing for a specific reader, a specific demographic. And there were so many other products and ingredients and beauty trends and technologies that I wanted to talk about, but I didn't actually have the platform. I mean, I had about you know 20 beauty pages a month, but it wasn't enough. So I thought I would create this beauty blog that just allowed me to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about and the products that really resonated with me, that I was interested in, and just didn't have the platform. Mm. So it was really more of a creative outlet. And I think as well, being a writer, you know, you naturally become adept to writing in the tone for those titles. And as a title, InStyle had a very conservative tone. And I think after a while, I started to get a bit bored of writing in that tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just write with my own personality. And I, I don't think beauty needs to be too serious at the end of the day. So I wanted this outlet where I could just talk about what I want as if I was talking to my friends. And that's really where Gritty Pretty started.
0: Yeah, it can be difficult when you get to the top of the mountain, you've mastered something and it's like, what's next? Mm. What else can I do to fulfill my passion? And I love that you found that in blogging and so many businesses start out that way when Mm. you kind of start to explore something on the side. Mm. What were some of the considerations that you had to take in making that transition because I want to know how long did it take you to transition and what was some yeah, what were some of the things that you had to consider oh. as you made that that decision?
1: It was a really hard decision. I had this perfect job mm. on paper. You know, I was the beauty editor of InStyle Magazine. It was an international glossy title. I was traveling the world getting paid peanuts, but it was a really amazing job with these incredible women. Mm. But I just couldn't kick that feeling that I wanted to freelance right for other titles and do other things. But I battled with a huge amount of self-doubt. I went through a process of a good six months of, I would say, low-level anxiety where I would come home And I just wasn't happy. And I would, you know, complain to my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. And it was just this constant push-pull. Am I good enough to go freelance? Could I go freelance? Would I book a job? Would I pay for my rent? I don't want to borrow money off my partner. And I went through all of these hypotheticals in my head for about six months and then I think my creative spark was well and truly put out by the end of those six months. And I remember my, my boyfriend or husband now, Matthew, he said to me, I just think you actually need to start believing in yourself. You've had six months to think about this. And if you want to go freelance and you want to establish a career as a freelance beauty journalist, you're going to have to start believing in yourself because no other editor is going to believe in you if you don't. And that was pretty much the kick of the butt that I needed. So the next day, I walked into my editor's office and I told her I was going to resign. And I feel sick thinking about it now. But I remember I was terrified because I was walking away from a full-time salary, not, not the largest salary, but a full-time salary and security for a career that is completely unknown. When you don't know you when you're going to get your next paycheck. And it almost seemed counterintuitive, you know, to walk away from that. And she was so incredibly understanding and then actually said to me, look, I want you to, just to have a really good think about it over the weekend and tell me if you think you could come to some other agreement, you know, whether you work part-time or, or whatever that is. And I was like, oh my God, I've just worked up the courage to quit and now you're not letting me quit. So that was a lot. But then I just, I spent the weekend to think about it. And then on the Monday, I I said to her, no, I think I really need to do this for me and to be able to extend my skills and push myself. Mm. And then that was pretty much it. I quit my job. And that was the beginning of, I guess, the rest of my career
2: a really interesting conversation because it's one that we have a lot with women in our community who are like, when should I quit? Mm-mm. Like, when should I mm. take my side hustle full time? And I get it. What are the markers? Mm-hmm. How much should I be making? Mm-hmm. Where do I need to be mentally? Mm. Do you have any advice for people who are kind of having that conversation or having those stories of self doubt mm. going through their head right now?
1: I don't think I'm the best example <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have much money to my name. You know, I worked in magazines and like I'm completely honest with everyone. No one but gets into magazines for the money. It is a low paying industry. You know, journalism is notorious for that. And I was banking on getting my annual leave that I was owed Mm. to survive off. I would recommend you don't do that. I would recommend that you do have that savings buffer behind you and really enough money that would carry you through the next three to four months if you're not going to have any income come in. Because the reality is, is that you probably won't. Mm. And, you know, whilst I did pretty much start working immediately, you know, I I got a laptop, I started pitching story ideas, I was booking work. But for a lot of these companies and particularly the larger ones, some of them have, you know, 60, 90, 120-day payment terms. So having that money that you can fall back on and that level of security, financial security is, I think, the number one piece of advice I would give to people because I definitely experienced a huge amount of stress in those early days. And then, I know, I mean, it's a common one that I think people will hear, but I think writing a business plan, it's really helpful because it allows you to almost, well, for me, it almost allowed me to remove the emotion from things and write things on paper. Mm. It allowed me to almost take this aerial view of my business and view it in a way where I could say, okay, well, if I'm going to create this as a business, how do I monetize it? Who are, in inverted commas, my competitors? You know, what's my point of difference? How much do I have to invest in a website or all of those things? But I, I think being a more of a creative person, it's not until I wrote those down on paper that I was sort of able to see the road that I could have in front of me, really. That's fascinating
0: because the whole business plan divides a lot Mm. of our podcast guests. You know, a lot of them have said, nah, you don't need it. Get started. What are you doing? Stop wasting time. And then, you know, a lot of them, like yourself, have said, actually, it's a Mm. great way to get my um, thoughts out onto paper um, and to follow through on a plan. What was your approach in building that business plan? (laughs) What was in there? Are we talking 60-page document Mm. or are we talking something that was
1: quite lean and yeah. I should say that I didn't want to write one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was forced. Yeah. Someone made you. Yeah. My
1: my husband was like, oh, Elle, I really think you should probably just write this down. Nothing bad's going to come from it. So I think we just went on the internet. We Googled business plan download. Great. We found some random Word document and literally I just filled that out.
0: Mm.
1: It was so top line because, again, I think, you know, I explained I'm such a creative minded person, although I can think commercially I'm much more creative. And I was sort of just like, no, 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 I've got all the ideas. I know what it's going to be. It's this beauty destination that doesn't exist. You know, everything at that time was covered in pink and um, Mm -hmm. had cartoon headers. And I just wanted this beautifully aesthetic platform with no BS and you can just come to it and know that there's no bullshit in there and you can just read it and take whatever you want from it. So there was a lot of back and forth between him and I on that. Mm -hmm. But eventually I did write it. And at the end of it, I think it was maybe like a 10-page document. Mm -hmm. And it did. It allowed me to see, okay, well, if I do the next, you know, however many months worth of freelance jobs, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to invest it into a new website skin. And I'm going to take X amount of money and I'm going to build an online magazine and be able to pay for photographers and, and other writers and things like that. But I think being able to actually write it down was very helpful to me. So I do recommend it. And I think it's important to as well recognize that, I mean, most businesses can fail within the Mm -hmm. first two years. So being across all of those details and allowing yourself to take that aerial view of Mm -hmm. a business, because when you are creating a business, you are emotionally attached to it. It's your baby, it's often born out of, you know, a passion or, you know, those side hustles that you're just so passionate about. So I think a business plan actually helps remove that level of emotion. Mm. So, yeah, I recommend them.
2: What was one of the most challenging things about getting it off the ground in the early days? Oh,
1: (laughs) I mean, I was in a unique position because I had been a beauty editor for about eight or so years. So I had already established contacts with beauty, brand managers, publicists. So I already very much had those networks, I guess. However, I had never worked in sales. You know, I'd always mm. worked in editorial. I was the writer and sales is something that doesn't come naturally to me. But to be able to fund a business, I needed sales. And Gritty Pretty is built off an advertising model so I quite literally just hit the pavement and I <laughs> emailed these people at all these big, big advertising agencies. I knew that who their clients were, some of the big beauty brands who I wanted to be advertisers. Yep. And I would email them and say, hello, I'm Eleanor. I'm the founder of Pretty Pretty. I'm about to launch Australia's first online digital magazine and I would love to have a meeting with you to be able to discuss it with you. And I just, I mean, I winged it. I was just going in there <laughs> with, I think, an iPad and I was like, so this is what the magazine's going to look like. So if you would like to book a full-page ad, I can send through a rate card. Don't know how how to cost that up. And that was pretty much it. But I managed to land one advertiser for the first issue of Pretty Pretty Magazine. And that was Balmain Fragrances. And I just remember thinking like, oh, my God. We're gonna make it. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make this a destination that women all over the world can come to mm. because I truly believed in my gut that it resonated with other women. But it was a hard, hard slog, and it still yeah. is a hard slog. Yeah, I'm so
2: glad that you brought this up yeah. because again, this is something that so many people struggle with. Mm. But no matter what business you have. You have to sell yourself, your vision, your brand, mm. whatever it is. And it would be a hard pitch in the early days when you don't have an audience or you don't have uh-huh. a wide uh-huh. readership. So how how did you frame that pitch when you just you didn't have the reach?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I framed it in a way that it was so incredibly unique. Um, you know, when I was going to these ad agencies, I was just about to launch the digital magazine. And in Australia, there was no other digital publication within this market. However, because I was building it with this online software, I wasn't able to actually go in and show these advertising managers how the actual end result was going to look. Mm. I don't even think I knew how to get Wi-Fi on my iPad. <laughs> oh, <at that> <laughs> you just um, brought in like hand drawings. Well, well yeah. I, brought, I brought PDFs, so I bought okay, static good. PDFs, <laughs> but that didn't actually show... How the magazine was going to work mm. because I had, I really wanted products to spin around and mm. open and close mm-hmm. because you know, when you open a, a physical magazine, it's tactile when you turn a page, you might see like a beautiful, you know, makeup palette and it's sitting open, but you don't get to see the incredible packaging on the outside. And as women, you know, we do care about that. Mm. If we're going to invest our money, we want to know what the entire product looks like inside Mm -hmm. and out. So I really wanted to animate products and work with, you know, an animator who could create these 3D renders, but I couldn't show the ad agencies that quite literally because the magazine wasn't live. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is a pity of what it's going to look like and just hope and pray that you know they would take a gamble and say okay we'll give it a shot and you know we'll buy an ad and it just went from there like i mentioned i was able to land that one advertiser within the first issue and then i just was able to use that to as leverage mm. for the next and i also in the early days as well she mentioned i gave a, a lot of complimentary brand ads mm, yeah. to clients yeah. and i think that's really important i think that's a key part in why we are successful now and i was very I guess, commercially aware and mindful that if other brands saw their competitors advertising in my magazine, then they would want to book an ad. bit of FOMO. Yeah, total FOMO.
0: Total FOMO. And that that first one can be, it's the most satisfying, isn't Mm -hmm. it? When you get that first one over the line and you're like, Mm. yes, as you said, you're like, yes, I can make something of this. But also back then, obviously, the landscape wasn't the same as it is Mm. now. Digital is everything. Like if you're not online, who are you? But were you faced with resistance Mm -hmm. in terms of, oh, I don't know if this is where magazines
1: are going. Where people 100%. still, were the brands still kind of catching up? 100%. And I think, I mean, maybe subconsciously that's one of the reasons why I also wanted to mm. leave. I ended up leaving magazines, but I definitely felt that resistance and mm. almost the mm. sense of arrogance that from a lot of the publishers or ad agencies that, oh, blog's a dirty word. And I definitely felt I was met with that, but I just knew in my gut that that was where we were all headed. It was how I was consuming my news every single day. I was no longer buying a newspaper. Mm. I was going onto my phone and I would find out, you know, all the world events at the touch of a button. So I knew we were always headed in that way. And again, like I said, I was met with more, far more no's than yeses. And it was really hard Mm. because, you know, I was throwing everything that I had into the business. Every dollar that I would earn, I'd throw it back into the business. All of my time was spent on building the platform. And it is really hard. We're not, you know, people aren't willing to take that gamble on you. But I'm incredibly grateful to the people that have because I do think that's why we are where we are today.
2: You're obviously a platform, you're a content-based business, and there are so many different ways to monetize content. Mm. You know, you've obviously gone after an advertising model. You Mm. could have gone after a subscription model. Mm. You've now got a shop. Like, there's so (laughs) many different facets to your business and Mm. so many directions you could go. Mm. How did you figure out how you're going to monetize?
1: I mean, I guess because I came from that publishing background, I was like, oh, great, advertising. I just sell brand ads. But I think native and sponsored content was starting to become a part of brands marketing plans at that time. So I think once I started seeing a couple of, uh, you know, a little bit of income come through the platform, whilst I was also, you know, freelance writing for anyone and everyone at that time, that's really where I thought, okay, well, that's a natural progression. That's how I'm going to monetize this business, earn enough money to pay people. And then the other extensions of the brand have really more so been in response to both our audience and the market. So as a business, Gritty Pretty is, yes, built on an advertising model, but Mm -hmm. we have several revenue streams. You know, we sell brand ads within our digital publication. We sell sponsored content opportunities. We have a directory business where we publish and review the best beauty salons and destinations around Australia. But because I know how much our audience trusts us and how much I value that trust, we have to send somebody into that business. They have to review it, fill out a scorecard. That scorecard comes to me and Mm -hmm. only if it reaches a very high criteria will we veto it. And then they will be published on site on a subscription model. Right, okay. So that's one of our our revenue streams. There's also our podcast, which we launched Mm -hmm. last year in the midst of COVID. And that was really in response to the fact that I was doing all these Instagram lives with these incredible beauty experts and personalities. I'd always wanted to do a podcast and never really had the time. And suddenly with COVID, I had a lot more time. So we built the podcast and we sell pre-roll positions within that and baked in ads. Mm Mm-hmm. We have our events as well, uh, which, as a community, are integral to the business. Being able to connect with our audiences, everything. And one thing that I will always, you know, I guess a conversation I have with other business owners or someone who's trying to start a business is: you are nothing without your audience mm. or your consumer. Without those women who come to Really Pretty and read us, we would have nothing. So, creating those events is so important, I guess, for us as a digital brand to be able to have that human-to-human connection. And nothing brings me more joy when I get to travel around Australia and meet the women who read the site. When I get insight into that and I, and I go, oh, what do you do for a job? And where do you live? And who's in your family? And I learn about all the products that they love to invest in or that they enjoy or they don't enjoy. That, I think, is more satisfying than anything else. Those events are sponsored. By brands because mm-hmm. in order to be able to basically put on what I describe as a small wedding, um, <laughs> we need finance. Yeah. So those events are sponsored and they are ticketed. So that's another one of our revenue streams. Another revenue stream that… I feel like you have a team of like 100 people? Yeah. No, no that's I, I don't. Right I, I <laughs> don't. And that's the thing. I think people do think that we are huge, yeah. but I have seven staff which I was actually like the other day just thinking to myself, oh, my God, I can't believe I have seven staff. That's amazing. That is amazing. amazing. Um, There are probably around 30 or 40 freelance contractors. Sure. But to be able to have those women as part of my full-time team, I'm really proud of that. So none of this is possible without any of them. Yeah. But then, so going back to, you know, how Gritty Pretty is built as a business, we also have another arm to the business, which probably isn't as – public facing to what our readers would see. And that is Gritty Pretty Productions. It's a productions Mm -hmm. agency. And we create and produce and execute digital campaigns on behalf of brands. And that is something that my team and I love. We love being able to dive into the psyche of a beauty brand and be able to create this local content for them. Because often with the global brands, they don't have any local assets. You know, they're given these These assets from Paris or New York, and they're just not relevant to women like you and I here in Australia. So, Gritty Pretty as an agency will develop those campaigns for them. And that's a large part of our business e commerce. Yes. And so, we did have e commerce. However, in December last year, we decided to phase that out. It was a difficult decision. I felt like, you know, going back to when I did launch the e store. For me, it just made sense because I wanted our audience to have this gritty, pretty experience. Mm. And, you know, you would come to us and you'd read about these stories. You'd read about these products that we had tested for months. So to be able, for you to be able to shop from us, I thought was a no-brainer. However, I think about a year or 18 months in, I realized how much I don't enjoy logistics (laughs) logistics yeah. <laughs> and how much of an investment, but such a low margin yeah. you can earn from mm-hmm. wholesale. Yeah. So we would purchase these products at wholesale. By the time we'd spent all that money on the beautiful packaging, it was like next to nothing. And then I think as I was approaching the next phase in my life, I was on my way to be a mother. I was pregnant and I just was, said to my husband, I don't want to do e-com anymore what I'm so passionate about is creating content. Mm. So I made the decision to close that part of the site down. But I also recognized as a business and as an offering, we could still offer a shop to our audience by way of recommendations. Mm-hmm. So we still have a shop vertical on grittypretty.com, but they are our beauty experts edit of products that we have approved. And you can shop them from the likes of Mecca and Sephora and David Jones and the like. And I'm really happy to be supporting those retailers here in Australia. So that was, a yeah, a recent pivot that we made. And I, th- I think I learned a lot out of it. I yeah, learned that right. I don't love e-commerce.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. yeah. That's a
1: great realisation. Yeah. 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 But I, I definitely felt almost this societal pressure that because I'm shutting it down, am I have I failed? failed. Mm. And I definitely sat with that for, I think, a good... Mm, maybe nine months I sat mm. with that. Okay. Yeah, and then eventually I just, I think I got to a point where I was like, no, that doesn't make me happy. So that's the reason why I'm doing it. And I don't need to justify yeah. my my answer to anyone about that. But yeah, Gritty is a business, is very multifaceted. Yeah. Oh,
2: so I really love multifaceted. that. It's so funny because so many things that you spoke of, we were mm. like, oh, yes. we're planning to do that. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or we've oh, thought about oh. that. Or, and it's hard. It's like, you know, there are so many different avenues that you can pursue. There's mm. so many different ways to monetize or ways to focus your attention. Mm. And was your journey kind of like, did you start out with the advertising and you got to a point where you were like, you nailed that, you had good revenue coming in through ads and then you added the next layer and then you added the next layer or was it something that kind of built out simultaneously?
1: No, it was very much layered. And I think once I had sunk my teeth into the business and realized, okay, this is my baby, I'm going to really foster this. I think that real entrepreneurial spirit kicked in and then i just became a bit addicted to okay well how can we how can i reach more women how can i help educate more women on beauty because at the core of what we do is beauty and i've never They've never strayed away from that. You know, we are a niche beauty platform. And the reality is, is that for all women, you'll walk into any store or go onto any retail website and it's really overwhelming. You don't know what to spend your money on. You hear about these products. Are they going to work for you? Perhaps not. But you want to arm yourself with as much education as you can before you make that purchase. So really, I just remembered that that's at the core of what I do. But how can I just connect with more and more women and grow the business in a way that I'm able to support that as well?
0: Oh, God, I've got so many questions. Can (laughs) I ask you, what's the most lucrative revenue stream?
1: Definitely um, productions and our advertising model. Mm -hmm. When I say advertising, I mean, I also include sponsored and native content. Mm -hmm. However, our directory business is something actually that my husband had the idea for. We were getting all of these DMs from our uh, readers on Instagram who would say, can you recommend you know, the best salon in Melbourne or I'm in Perth and I'm going there for a, a wedding and I really want to get my makeup done. Do you know a makeup artist there? And he just said to me one day, he was like, oh, you should just make a directory mm. and then you don't have to respond to every single person a hundred times a day yeah. and let them know, send them links. Yep. So the directory as a business, I think it's a really smart part of the business because it's almost like a passive revenue stream. And it is a timely process once we've gone through the testing process, the review process, the writing of the review the photography of the business, and then we upload that content to site, it sits there for a 12-month period. So it's really a passive revenue stream. And I think that, for me, is something I really want to build out. And I also don't see any limits with that. You know, like, why yeah. can't – we've just launched into New Zealand. So we've got people in New Zealand who are our beauty experts and they test these uh, destinations for us to ensure that they're of the highest quality and provide the best service. But why can't we have the best salons in mm. overseas, oh, you know, hopefully when timeless. we can travel there? So yeah. for me, I, I see opportunity in that, that that could become a global directory of sorts. Mm. And so yeah. what
2: do businesses get as part of their subscription? Is it just the presence on the site or are there other inclusions as part of that?
1: There's always other inclusions. You know, I think publishing back in the day was very... Formulaic. Mm. It was just like this is a rate card, and this is how much you will pay for a full page brand ad, and you will receive nothing else. Mm. Also, we can't really tell you how many people saw it. Anyway, but that's (laughs) another conversation. But for us, it's really also about supporting them as a small business. So, what else can we give them? How else can we they leverage off our platform? Can we support them with social media coverage, whether that's Instagram coverage or Instagram story coverage? Can we? speak with and interview some of their experts. There's so much more that we can do and it's very much every package is tailored to that client on a client by client basis. Right. So you have kind of like the off the shelf
0: package, but then- Can you just like add on and have inclusions? Do you have a framework? Yeah. For the
1: directory, definitely. For the other elements of the business, you know, more of the advertising model, there is no off the shelf. Mm. There is nothing over the shelf. It is all All bespoke. bespoke. And so how time
0: consuming is that for you and your team? I mean, you've got seven. How
1: many people are working across sales? So I only have two part-time staff on sales. Wow. Okay. Um, And then I have two graphic designers and together with them and then our beauty writer and our beauty director we we have a very collaborative approach mm. to responding to commercial briefs it's something i encourage every person in the team to be involved in so we will come up with ideas um we'll often reverse brief if we get a brief come in and we just feel that what this brand mm. what their objectives are or what their aims are don't actually quite land with our audience, we'll reverse brief them. But that does take a huge amount of time. It can take Mm. a few days or up to a week to come up with these original ideas, make them visual, put them into the most beautiful deck. Totally. That Mm. represents Gritty Pretty. Then pitch it to them, Mm. um, which we love to always do. I mean, we would have done it in person, but we do (laughs) it a lot via Zoom these days. And sometimes we don't win them. You know, they can be lost business. So it is really time-consuming, But it's an integral part of the business Mm. because if we don't sell those positions, we can't produce editorial. And I generally have followed this 80-20 rule. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to editorial versus advertising, I believe so strongly that our audience should receive more editorial content than advertising content. So of a week, for example, we only publish one story a day because we shoot everything Our writers write everything in-house. We don't do clickbait. Every single story has a lot of, you know, heart and soul put into Mm. it. So we publish one story a day, five, sometimes six times a week. Only one of those pieces of content could be sponsored content. Right. And again, I think that's really important because it's what I think has fostered that trust between our community It doesn't mean that it's been easy for us because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm trying to also ensure that I'm scaling the business and and paying people what they're worth. So it's just this constant push and pull, I find, to just move along in terms of cash flow. Mm. But you have to just just be across that every single cent of the way. Yeah, you do. You
0: really do. (laughs) And
1: and math is not, like, numbers is not my strong suit.
0: Well, then how do you... Navigate that when it's not necessarily a strength of yours? How do you navigate mm. that? Who do you have to support you?
1: Uh, so I have my husband to support me. He has his own full time job as a project manager, but he is he quite enjoys the finance mm, side of things. Fab. So he's basically like my glorified bookkeeper. Ooh, um, very, ha- very handsome bookkeeper, <laughs> yeah, Matt Wilson. Uh, Matt
2: Wilson,
1: oh, yeah. um, Matt, the director? Matt Wilson <laughs> bookkeeping services. <laughs> <laughs> so he supports me so, so much. And I'm so grateful to him for that because it allows me to focus on more of the creative yeah. and commercial parts of the business. Yeah. But I still at the same time, I've had to become familiar with it and become comfortable with numbers. Mm. Because, you know, if I'm not, then we can't grow. Mm. And I've now I think I've reached a point where I do sort of enjoy it. You just have to be across every cent that comes in and every yeah. cent that goes out. Otherwise you go under. It doesn't matter how big you are, it doesn't matter if you're a multi-million dollar company or you're a one-man band. Mm. You have to be across your cash flow. Mm. I like that. You have to be aware of every cent that goes in, every cent that goes out or otherwise
0: you're going to go under. Yeah, it's, it's good. true.
1: It's a reality, right? Yeah. And we've seen that throughout COVID. I think that's, you know, really shown us Often for the the larger companies as well, you can have so many overheads. Mm. Um, And a lot of those companies had a huge amount of debt. So I've always run things pretty lean. I've never rushed to hire. Mm. Um, I've always really taken my time and growing the team. And I only ever hired more so when the demand was there. As the business grew and I found that I, you know, I didn't personally have time to, say, book every single freelancer on a job. That's when I recognized, okay, I actually need a producer now. So I, w- I was always very mindful never to rush that. So I'd really love to know,
0: Eleanor, with sponsored
1: content, mm.
0: can you talk us through like the whole process end to end from when the brand comes on board right through to delivery?
1: Mm-hmm. I guess in terms of the approach, we can either be approached and we will receive a brief from brand. There was once upon a time where we never received a brief and mm-hmm. it, it was only proactives. So it's either um, in response to or a proactive pitch. But generally speaking, if we receive a brief for some sponsored content activity, we quite literally sit down as a team, we print out the brief and we dissect every single element Mm. of it. We try to get into the mind of the brand and understand what their aims and objectives are, what their challenges are Mm. as well, um, who they're trying to speak to. And then we decide whether that's actually relevant for our audience. Does she actually want to read about this regardless of whether it's sponsored or not? Because if she doesn't, we will decline that job. So that's always number one. Number two is then just letting like the creative juices just flow. We sit around, you know, our table at work and we just honestly come up with the craziest ideas. And together with our incredibly talented art director, our sales team, our beauty director, we just come up with ideas. And, we, and I think the biggest motivator for the team and also for me is to come up with ideas and content narratives that you haven't seen before. I just get tired of seeing the same sort of content. So if we can shoot or film something in mm-hmm. a different way, with a different team, with a different story, that motivates us more than anything. We'll then package up those ideas and quantify them. So we'll add, you know, rates to those in order to be able to respond to a brief's budget. And then we will package it up in the most beautiful deck. And that deck has to be perfect. Mm. I will go over that deck two, three, four times before we send it across to a brand. And then we will talk them through that brief or that response brief to them over Zoom or perhaps in person and really help I guess foster that trust because I'll admit there can be challenges in that sometimes brands will just come to you and say, this is what we want. But if that doesn't land with our brand, Gritty Pretty's brand, and then our audience, I just don't see a point. Mm. So being able to encourage them to trust us to shoot, to produce, to write in our tone is imperative. And then it's go time, you know, we come up with our flighting schedule of when the content will go live and we work back from that. We book in all of our shoot dates, our writers commence work on writing and testing. And then we compile all of these assets that we are always really proud to hand over to a brand. Um, And then it goes live on site for you guys to be able to read.
2: (laughs) What's your lead time with...
1: You know, it's <laughs> possible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how long would that take? In a perfect, because we obviously have multiple jobs on the go, yeah, 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 and there's other parts of the business which I mentioned earlier. In a perfect world, we'd love three to four weeks, okay, end to end. But yeah. sometimes it's longer. C- no, sometimes a client is oh, like, we shorter. need it next week. So, um, yeah, we'll have to reshuffle our priorities, perhaps reshuffle our editorial calendar just to free up space Mm -hmm. and time so that we can actually execute. But it all depends.
2: Mm. Yeah. Okay, so we have some final questions for you. Okay. (laughs) What is next for Gritty Pretty? Where are you you heading?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so much I want to do. And you know what? It all comes down to capital. It all depends on how much finance we have to be able to execute these ideas. I want to take gritty pretties, one night only beauty masterclasses all over the country. I want to get to the people in Perth and in Adelaide and in the Northern Territory, but we need money to do that. So I guess for me, the biggest thing is just simply scaling, Mm -hmm. growing our audience, number one, and making sure that we're always fostering our Australian audience. About 70% of our audience is Australian and then our second is US and then followed by UK. And for me being Australian, it's important to me that we really nurture that audience and grow it as well as grow our global audience. But it's really just about scaling, but doing it thoughtfully as well. I think perhaps now because I'm a mum, I just want to work on projects that make me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, So taking on projects that I guess just really fill up my cup and don't make me feel so stretched think that's the, the most important thing you know I'm I'm juggling raising a family and, and looking after a household and raising a business and looking after eight women in my team and I think for me it's just being able to I've arrived at this place where I can pick and choose mm. a little bit and I feel really proud to have arrived at that and I think just being whatever I do I just want it to be quality and I want to be present with it whether it's a, a project for Gritty Pretty whether it's conversing with one of our readers, whether it's spending time with my son and my husband, whatever I do, I just want to be present in that. So
0: yeah,
1: I love that. A moment where you were like, how the hell am I here and how the hell is this happening? (laughs) (laughs) I know the exact moment. It just came straight to me. I remember sitting in a Uber in LA and I was with my art director and we were on our way to Miranda Kerr's Malibu Beach House. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know if I can swear but yeah, you can can swear. Go. How, like how the fuck am I <laughs> in this car on my way to Miranda Kerr's house I've paid for our flights to get here I've paid for this shoot this cover shoot somehow she said yes to being on my cover and now I'm on my way to her house like I just I <laughs> what re- the hell I just remember That's a like, great what that moment and I just yeah. remember this moment of disbelief and just being so so proud of so much hard work mm. that had gone into getting me to that place. None of it has come on a silver platter. So that was a big moment. Quickly, how
2: many how many years in was that moment?
1: Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was maybe about eighteen months in. Mm. Yeah, oh, wow, yeah, about a year and a half. And she's since gone on to cover two of our issues. Landing cover talent is something you know I get asked a lot about. You know, how do you get these people onto your cover? How did Hayley Bieber agree and Miranda Kerr and, and all these various celebrities. It's never easy, let me tell you. It's, there's more people who say no than yes. Mm. But I'm every time that someone agrees, I'm just so proud because it, they're agreeing to be on the cover of a digital magazine that doesn't have the DNA or the history that other titles have. You know, your Elle's and your Harper's Bazaar and your Vogue's, they have these decades of history. But those celebrities and those women... They're choosing Mm. to lend their brand freely to my business. And so I'm always proud of that.
2: We always offer our guests the opportunity to do a bit of a shout out to another Lady Brain who has helped them on their journey. I'm Mm. sure there are many, many, Mm. many, many. But if you could choose just one person, who's had a really massive impact on you and your business journey?
1: Oh, that's so hard to pick one woman. That's really hard. You can say a couple if you want. Um, I think... (laughs) The community of friends that I have, my really close circle of friends, some are business owners, some aren't. Those women have inspired me more than anyone else. Um, And I've been fortunate enough to have mentors who have gone on to grow huge multi-million dollar businesses. But at the end of the day, being able to call up my best friend who right now is raising her daughter and is a stay-at-home mother and just be able to like shoot the shit with her and say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think about that? I've learned more from those women than any other. And then
0: we would love you to leave our listeners with the best
1: piece of business advice that you've received or Mm. that might come from you. I think when it comes to launching a business, what holds so many back is always fear it's fear of failure. And my biggest piece of advice would be to not be afraid to fail and not necessarily even see it as failure, but see that taking of a leap as growth. And I always just say to people, like when you're 85, let's hope you're 90 years old and you're sitting there on your near deathbed, do you really genuinely want to look back on your life and say, I wish I did? Because mm-hmm. if you do, then that needs to be your motivation to do what makes you so so happy. I feel like I'm crying to cry. I'm not
2: safe.
1: I just think life is so incredibly short. Yeah, and you've just got to do what you love. And yeah, sure, maybe your business is gonna fail. That's a, that is a possibility, but at least you know you tried.
0: Amen to that, sister.
1: Amen. What a beautiful ending. Can yeah. I give you a hug? <laughs> oh, my God. I oh, am
2: no. <laughs> The three things to take out of this chat with Eleanor are, number one, when you're thinking of taking the leap from a job into a full-time business, take a long, hard look at your finances. Be really clear about how much you have in the bank, how long that cash will sustain you without any other income, and how much your business needs to be making in order to pay yourself a living wage. Secondly, consider whether you can build your business one revenue stream at a time. Eleanor started making money through advertising, but over time she added additional income streams like sponsored content, a B2B subscription and a production agency. Start with one revenue stream, really get it humming before you expand into the next and the next and the next. And lastly, never underestimate the power of a really strong pitch deck. As Eleanor said, she reviews her brand decks hundreds of times before they're sent out. We could not agree more with this piece of advice. With a beautifully designed, well-considered deck, you will get way more cut through with the receiver. Thanks, Eleanor, for such a great chat. Remember to subscribe to get all the insights from all of our podcast episodes. To join the conversation, head across to our Facebook group. Just search Lady Brains and you'll find us. Lady Brains is
0: hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic. A listener production.